So I'd, I'd like you to, uh, um, for the talk tonight, I'd like you to pay particular attention uh, to your body. And sense your body, feel your body, be in touch with your body. Let the words come in the ear, but let the, let the words come in your chest or your arms or your belly. Uh, let, it, let, it, let it all come in through your body. Um, partly, I would, I'm encouraging that because I'm going to talk about the body tonight, but also specifically I would like as much as possible, or it might be most helpful, keep seeing what your direct experience of body is like rather than just the idea of body or the image of body. When, um, when I was look, thinking about this talk I came across a quote from Walt Whitman who said, if anything is sacred, the human body is sacred. And I was I took a bike ride to this early this morning. I went out really early and I rode to Fairfax and then I went over Mount Tam, which is probably just about my favorite bike ride, you know, and it's really beautiful to go. So it's, it's a good climb to get up to the top of Mount Tam and then it's just kind of spectacularly beautiful, um, especially this morning because it was sunny on Mount Tam and then the fog just covered the ocean for quite a ways and then beyond you could see where it was blue out there. The fog didn't go all the way out, it just came and you know cuddled up next to the shoreline and of course in parts of San Francisco. And, and I was enjoying my body actually and a little bit amazed that my body can do this, can, you know, I'm, I'm having an older body at this point and it's actually doing pretty well on a ride like that and it's like wow how does that happen and I, I actually felt pretty strong I felt stronger so it's like the, oh, the body can still get stronger even though it's going in the wrong direction right and <laughs> it's getting older but on my way back I came down and I, I came down panoramic and then to highway one and down highway one to Mill Valley and then I went in Sausalito, I went and saw my friend Frank Ostaseski who had a triple bypass about two weeks ago. And, um, and I, I've been continuing to see Frank, drop in on him, see how he's doing. And he's, he's doing pretty good, you know, he's, he had the bypass and he's recovering and it's a slow but steady recovery. And I, I always knock on his door, and then I walk around to the deck that he, little deck that he has, and so I, and he's sitting there in a chair. There's nobody there, and he was just kind of sitting, hanging out. And uh, but he had his shirt off, which he, I hadn't seen. I'd been in the hospital when he had his shirt off, but he had bandages on, and he, his first time, I got a really good look at the scar from the triple bypass and it was bigger in the, in the hospital somehow what I saw looked smaller but here it, it was definitely bigger than I and you can see where they you know cut open and cut through the the bone and opened him up and even that's amazing that you know we have bodies that somebody can come in and you know take a little chainsaw to and then and then work on you and then put you back together and then it's like you're kind of okay. 
he's not totally okay, but he's pretty, pretty okay considering how amazing the body is. And I wanted to talk, I already knew I wanted to talk tonight about the body and about our identification with the body, our identification with the body. And so what I'd like to start you out with is this quote from the first teachings on the foundations of mindfulness. And, and there's a little introduction that the Buddha gives about the, uh, the direct path to awakening, the four foundations of mindfulness, and then he, he gives the four foundations, and then he goes into the contemplation of the body, which is the first foundation of mindfulness. And he goes through mindfulness of breathing and mindfulness of the posture of the body, like we were doing, so we were practicing that. And then he goes into mindfulness and full awareness, which is what we were doing in, after we meditated. We were being mindful of the body as it moves, as it stands up, as it reaches, as it grasps, as it speaks, as it listens. That's what we were attempting to do, be mindful and full awareness. And then the Buddha talks about being mindful of all the parts of the body. And then he talks about the elements of earth, air, fire, water, space. And then, and then he does a number of contemplations of what are called the charnel ground contemplations, mindfulness of the body after it dies, which is also part of the contemplation of a body, which is the contemplation of mortality. After each of these sections, and these are each little different sections with different instructions like mindfulness of breathing and mindfulness of posture and mindfulness of the different parts of the body, there's what's called the insight. And I want to read you the insight. And the Buddha says it this way. He says, it, he says literally, he says, in this way one abides contemplating the body as the body internally. Or one abides contemplating the body as the body externally, the, the outside of the body. Or one abides contemplating the body as the body both internally and externally. Or else one abides contemplating the body in its arising factors. Or one abides contemplating the body in its vanishing factors. Or one abides contemplating the body in the uh, body in both its arising and vanishing factors. I actually have some d different translation here. Um, um, one abide, w or one remains focused, one abides contemplating the body in the body on the phenomenon of origination with regard to the body, on the phenomenon of passing away with regard to the body, or on the phenom phenomenon of origination and passing away with regard to the body, both. The appearance and disappearance of body. And the factors that allow for the appearance of body and the factors that allow for the disappearance of the body. And then he goes on, the Buddha says, or else mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. Yeah, it's pretty much the same translation. And then he goes, and this is the, the really, I believe, the most important part, and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. 
So after establishing mindfulness of the body, both internally, externally appearing, disappearing, or, or else simply that there is a body, then one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu, a practitioner, abides contemplating the body as a body. So this is the instruction for us. In, in addition to these different forms of practice, mindfulness of breathing or posture or mortality or whatever it might be, it's also to learn to, or, or just simply aware of a, that there is a body and then to abide independent, not clinging to anything in this world. So that's our koan, that's our, that's, that's our um, uh, conundrum. How do we abide not clinging to anything in this world, which of course means not clinging to our bodies. And, and one thing that's always important is to notice how you hear a teaching like that. Because the Buddha's not saying, oh, you can't enjoy your body, or you can't appreciate your body, or you shouldn't love your body, or you shouldn't use it well. He's just simply saying, not clinging to anything in this world. Okay, that's the first part. And the second part... I want to read you a story from a sutta here in the Majjhima Nikaya, which are the middle-length discourses of the Buddha, the middle-length stories. Um, and this is um, it's a, uh, one of my favorite stories because the Buddha is speaking to his son Rahula. And there are, there are three different texts where the Buddha gives teachings to his son. First when he's seven years old, then when he's 18, then a little older. I can't remember the age. And this is when he's 18. And here's what happened. It begins as all these stories begin. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One, meaning the Buddha, was living in Svati in Jetha's Grove and not the Pindaka's Park. Then, when it was morning, the Blessed One dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe went into Svati for alms. He went begging for his food, which the Buddha and all the monastics did and in our tradition still do. The Venerable Rahula, Rahula had joined the, the uh, monastic order uh, and become a disciple of his father. Um, the Venerable Rahula also dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe followed close behind the Blessed One. Then the Blessed One looked back and addressed the Venerable Rahula thus, Rahula, any kind of material form, whatever, any kind of material form, whatever, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all material form should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. So, the backstory of what happened here 
goes like this. The Buddha's walking to go get alms, his food. Rahula's walking behind him, but he can see the Buddha and see the Buddha's countenance, see his face, and see how beautiful he is, how handsome he is, how radiant he is. And it's his dad, right? He's walking behind his dad. So he's thinking, oh, look at how great my dad looks. He's pretty cool looking. I look like him. I bet I'm going to look as good as him when I get older. Some, something like that is happening in Rahula's mind. He's contemplating the Buddha and how good he looks and thinking, yeah, it's my dad, it's my family, I got the same genes, I'm good looking, he's good looking, we're a good looking family here. Right? And the Buddha, who's you know slightly omniscient, I don't know if you can actually be slightly omniscient, but... <laughs> In this case, he knows what Rahula's thinking, and he turns around and he says to him, Rahula, any kind of material form whatever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all material form should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. So he's giving him a teaching about the body, about form, which is what that word translates to body. He's saying, when you contemplate form, whether your, your own form, contemplate it with proper wisdom. This is not mine, this, I am not, this is not myself. And then Rahula answers, he hears it, he says, only material form, only material form, blessed one. And the Buddha continues to teach. He says, material form, Rahula, and feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. And he's giving him a teaching of what's called the five skandhas. These are five uh, um, components of where people cling, where we cling. We cling to form, we cling to feeling, we cling to perception, we cling to formations as thought, and we cling to consciousness itself. And then the venerable Rahula considered thus, he, he realizes he's been admonished by the Buddha, right? Buddha wasn't just always kind of nice, he, was, he, was, he could be tough, he had a tough love side to him, the Buddha. So that's what he just did with Rahula. He said, no, 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 you, you know, get it straight. And, and Rahula says to himself, he considered thus, who would go into town for alms today when personally admonished by the Blessed One? Now, can you imagine how you would feel if you're walking behind the Buddha and he turns around and he admonishes you? I mean, half of us would just collapse right there, you know what I mean? Oh my God, the Buddha, I'm so bad, he said that. It would, it, would, I would, it would totally stimulate our inner judgment, totally. But it's not what, what Rahula does. He considers it, and then he says, he says, who would go into town? Thus he turned back and sat down at the root of a tree, folding his legs crosswise, sitting his body erect, and establishing mindfulness in front of him. So he practiced. He heard a teaching, and he decided to sit down right there and practice with the teaching. There'll be more about this as we go on.
This is one of the teachings about not-self in Buddhism. That the body is basically, it's very simple, the body is not-self. We don't own the body. The body is not who we are. It's here, and we have a very intimate relationship with the body. But we I tend to identify with it as who we are. I have a good body, I have a bad body, I like my body, I don't like my body. How did I get this body? How did I get into a body? What I'd like to talk about in terms of the identification with the body are two areas, body image and body boundary. Body image, the image we have, the self-image based on our body, and then the, the boundary that we identify with based on having a physical limitation related to that identification with the body. So I'll say a few things about body image. First, there's a, I looked up, you know, you can Google anything now, so. I googled body image today and saw, see what came up and there was a lot on the web about body image. Wikipedia said, essentially a person's body image is how they perceive their exterior look and in many cases this can be dramatically different from how they actually appear to others. Have you ever noticed that? I, I, I have to confess I had a a busy afternoon and I had to go to a meeting before this. Um, um, but when I really thought at some point, I thought oh, I should get a hand mirror and I should hand the hand mirror out and you should just pass it around the whole time during the talk and you should look. I'd have each person look and see at what that image is that we generally take to be ourselves and see if the, in the current image in the mirror actually coordinates with what we have in our mind. Because generally it's actually, we're not usually up to date. <laughs> you know, I mean for some of us maybe it's five years ago or ten years ago or sometimes it's like our image of ourselves is like from when we were twelve or or you know, or or when we're having certain feelings, the actual image we have is is very is even younger than that. So, and another place that I looked up said body image involves our perception, imagination, emotions, and physical sensations of and about our bodies. It's not even just an image in terms of visual. It's the, the images that we have of ourselves are impacted by how we feel, our energy, our day. You ever notice how sometimes you look in the mirror, you think, oh, I look great, you know, and you feel great. And, you know, an hour later, you're in a bad mood, and you look in the mirror, ah, I look horrible, you know. And because it's, it's impacted by our affect and what, what we see, even. And they go on to say, it's not static, but ever-changing, sensitive to changes in mood, environment, and physical experience. And now here's the important part. It is not based on fact. 
our image of ourself is not based on fact. It is psychological in nature and much more influenced by self-esteem than by actual physical attractiveness as judged by others. It is not inborn but learned. It is not inborn but learned. This learning occurs in family and among peers and those only reinforce what is learned and expected culturally. And, you know, of course, some of what I saw when I went to body image had a lot to do with um, issues around, the issues around the body, the suffering around body image that we have, that we don't have the right body, that we have a bad body or a wrong body or too big a body or too thin a body or too... whatever it might be. And um, one of the places it said like 56% of the women and 40 some percent of the men were really unhappy with their body. I would say probably about 99% of everybody is not is dissatisfied with their body in some way, shape or form. And you know we know that culturally the, the way it comes down on the in, in this cultural um, uh, um, smog into the psyches of women is that they should look like the models who are selling all the products, right? And this, this tremendous emphasis on thinness and uh, a certain style of body. And of course it's now come down much more with men where they, uh, young men uh, and boys wanting to be much more muscular, that they have a new uh, syndrome, it's called uh, Bigorexia. <laughs> this is a male syndrome, bigorexia or uh, muscle dysmorphia. Where even with something like some men wanting to put on something like 25 pounds more muscle in order to be masculine. And, you know, I, I don't mean to um, uh, actually joke about this too much because it's quite serious, both for men and women the suffering around body image. It's a tremendous around suffering. And remember what was said, it's not based in fact, right? It is psychological in nature and much more influenced by other factors, learned factors. And so the image we hold of ourself, and, and just everybody shut your eyes for a minute and see what image, what, what's the image you have of yourself? How do you imagine yourself? What age are you actually imagining? Or what look? Is it a, do you like it or not like it? What's your... How does it feel if you see it's not true? Whatever it is you're imagining, it's just an image of yourself. It's not the direct experience of your body, which you can also begin to feel right now. And you can start to see what the difference is if you hold the image, but feel your body, feel the reality of a body, which is not an image. The aliveness that's here, the warmth or coolness that's here, the weight or lightness that's here, the sense of tension or relaxation that might be here. 
this is the body of awakening. This is the body, this is the Dharma body that begins to reveal the truth of the Dharma to us. Now, um, there's a fellow, I'm not sure if he's still alive, I think he is, named Douglas Harding. How many people here know who Douglas Harding is? Just like one person, wow. Couple people, okay. So I haven't seen Douglas Harding in years now, but um, he, he was a kind of, um, not crotchety, but definitely um, unique kind of British individualist, we could say. Uh, when I saw him, he came to Zen Center one time many years ago, and, and he had written a book called On Having No Head. On Having No Head. And part of what he started to point to was what it was like to let go of the ideas and the images we have of body and just live here in the body. And I'll read to you a little from, this is a little excerpt from On Having No Head. And he talks about this day when he realized this, that he didn't have a head. And if you'll notice, if you pay really close attention right now, you'll see you don't have a head either that everybody else here has a head. But you notice you can't see your own head. <laughs> now this is important. This is, this, this is how Douglas teaches, right? So you see there's all these other heads, but not, you can't see your head. So start to come into alignment with that reality, to let that reality be here. Actually, the, I think his book was called On Having No Head, Zen and the Rediscovery of the Obvious. It's a beautiful title. He said he was 33 and he made the discovery. And it certainly came out of the blue, but it did so in response to an urgent inquiry. I had for several months been absorbed in the question, what am I? The fact that I happened to be walking in the Himalayas at the time probably had little to do with it, though the country, uh, though in that country, unusual states of mind are said to come more easily. And he was overlooking Everest and walking around. He said, what actually happened was something absurdly simple and unspectacular. I stopped thinking. A particular, a peculiar quiet, an odd kind of alert limpness or numbness came over me. Reason and imagination and all mental chatter died down. For once words really failed me, past and future dropped away. I forgot who and what I was, my name, manhood, animalhood, all that could be called mine. It was as if I had been born that instant, born, brand new, mindless, innocent of all memories. There existed only the now and that present moment and what was clearly given in that present moment. To look was enough, right? So he's there, his mind stops, past and future, ideas, beliefs, all that stuff drops away for a little while. It happens sometimes. And he says, there existed only now that present moment and what was clearly given in it to look was enough. And what I found was khaki trouser legs terminating downwards in a pair of brown shoes, right? He looked, he said, okay, what am I? He looked, he sees this. 
And then he says, khaki sleeves terminating sideways in a pair of pink hands. And a khaki shirt front terminating upward in nothing. <laughs> nothing, what, absolutely nothing whatever. Certainly not in a head. Right? We assume we have a head. We believe we have a head. Because we saw it in a mirror, we think it's here. But where, where is your head right now? Can you see it? So this is how a little bit, and he does all these great little totally weird tricks to do this with you. Anyhow, he says, it took me no time at all to notice that this nothing, this hole where a head should have been, was no ordinary vacancy, no mere nothing. Right, okay, so, and, and notice for yourself now, right? You, there's no head, you can't see your head, but what's there? What's there where your head would be? He says, on the contrary, it was very much occupied. It was a vast emptiness, vastly filled, a nothing that found room for everything, right? I mean, everything that's here is where you think your head would be. <laughs> Found room for everything, room for grass, trees, shadowy distant hills, and far above them snow peaks like row of angular clouds riding the blue sky. I had lost a head and gained a world. It was naked, uncritical attention to what had all along been staring me in the face my utter facelessness. In short, it was all perfectly simple and plain and straightforward, beyond argument, thought, and words. There arose no questions, no reference beyond the experience itself, but only a peace and a quiet joy and the sensation of having dropped an intolerable burden. This was a little bit Douglas's awakening. And it's one, you know, you can play with that. It's great not to have a head. You have everything else is here. It's kind of fun. Now, to go back to this question of body image, this image we have of our body. In psychological theory, the understanding is that the body image is the basis for self-image or the sense of self. That the first sense of self that we have as children is a bodily sense of self. Is an identification with our body. Okay. Now, part of that identification comes as we realize that we're separate in some way, physically, from our mother or parenting figure. Right? It said, at least in psychological theory, that originally the baby doesn't know that, the child doesn't know that they're separate. And as they develop, and as we learn to begin some mastery of our physicality, we start to get a sense of this separateness. And this boundedness, this boundariness, excuse me, this boundariness becomes very strong for us. We live as if we're separate. 
from other people. We live as if the boundary of our body delineates who and what we are. Now there is a, you know, there is a certain level of a boundary here, right? Even though we know the body is totally permeable, right? It's breathing, the skin is the largest organ of breath in the, in the body. Largest organ in the body, actually, I believe. Um, and one of the things that happens is we tend to think our consciousness is limited to our boundary, to the body boundary. And that's one of the confusions that happens with the identification with body, self-image, and body boundary, the form or shape of the body. Ken Welber's, one of his first books about awakening was called No Boundaries. No Boundaries. So this idea of boundariness goes in opposition to the understanding of openness or emptiness or spaciousness or interconnectedness or the fact that we're not, we take ourselves to be this separate entity and it's true, there's a physical separateness but that's only if we identify with the body as who we are. If that identification is not here, then maybe that separateness is not true. So I'll read you a little, I'll read you a little something from, um, this is Hamid Ali, one of my teachers, but also he's really quoting a lot um, Margaret Mahler, who was, she was a, a, a ego psychologist and theorist who studied the development of babies and how babies formed a sense of self, how they uh, began to uh, separate and individuate from the parenting figure or figures. And this is from Hamid, he said, the ego is first and foremost a body ego in the sense that the self-demarcations that form our consciousness during infancy are based on our sensory experience of our bodies as distinct from other objects. The delusion is taking these body boundaries to define and limit our sense of who and what we are. On the physical level, it's true that each of us has physical boundaries and this body is separate from that body. But on the level of consciousness, these boundaries are permeable. The edges of our bodies do not define where we end and others begin. Although if we have this conviction, it will feel this way. But even, even this, even the fact that I can say something and you can understand it or even consider it, I don't know if I'm making, it, making enough sense for you to understand it, but even that you can consider what I'm saying points to the fact that consciousness is permeable, that we touch each other with our consciousness. You ever walk into a room and somebody's really angry and you feel it immediately? That consciousness is not simply bound to the body. Or if you've ever been in a room where there's a a birth or a death, 
you, the whole experience impacts us. And things are things are very per. We're actually experiencing each other all the time, not in, not in such dramatic situations. So I'll continue from Hamid. He said, but on the level of consciousness, these boundaries are permeable. The edges of our bodies do not define where we end and others begin, although if we have this conviction, it will feel that way. When we recognize that this experience is a delusion, we see that the ego boundaries that we used to define ourselves, that we used to define ourselves, are only mental constructs. We realize we have been holding on to an image of our bodies in order to define ourselves as entities, as separate things. Let's see where we'll go from here. So there's one other piece I want to read you from Margaret Mahler, because she's talking about um, she said, the body ego contains two kinds of rep self-representations, two kinds of self-images, an inner core of body image with a boundary that is turned toward the inside of the body and divides it from the ego, and the outer layer of senso sensory uh, perceptive engram engrams that contribute to the boundaries of the body self. And what, I'll try to say this a little more in English, that there's basically that there are two ways that we in, internally, in our psyche, we hold the body, is the inner sense of the body and the outer form both create boundaries. That's a simple way to say it. And this is very, it's very interesting because the Buddha has this lovely phrase when he talks about awakening. He says it this way, he says, in this fathom-long body, right, describing the outer form of body, in this fathom-long body, with its perception and inner sense, with the inner experience of body, we will discover the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path that leads to freedom. That it is within this body, with its outer and inner experience, that we will find freedom by not clinging to this experience that is here. So now feel your body. Feel it directly. Don't think about the body now. You've done enough thinking. We've done plenty of thinking tonight, don't you think? <laughs> that was spontaneous. I didn't have that written down. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just feel your body, keep feeling your body, the inner sense, the outer form, not so much the idea, not so much the image, not so much the memory, not so much the photograph. Sometimes, you know, if, if I ask people to tell me what their image is, they generally refer to a photograph from the past. It's like, oh yeah, I have a picture in my mind from my, when I was at the prom or, you know, or some weird place that they were. And then we begin to experience ourselves through the filter of these images, through the filter of being bounded. And the images distort 
direct experience. And it's why we want to keep coming back to, to now, to the experience of the body now, so the body can begin to reveal itself to us, can begin to show itself to us, can begin to show itself on a very elemental level. And in Buddhism, the elemental level is earth, air, fire, water, and space. Earth, air, the earth element, the air element, the fire element, the water element, the space element. And so to come back to Rahula, he talks, you know, after he sits down, he goes to see the Buddha later that evening. And he says, oh, how do we practice, how is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so it's a great fruit, a great blessing? And what the Buddha does is he gives him the teachings of the elements. And here's the teaching, here's how to practice. Um, he says, whatever, oh, I'm not gonna go into too much detail, let's see how I can say it simply. Um, um, whatever is elemental, the earth element, something heavy, something solid, something uh, uh, solidified and clung to. This is the earth element. And, and it should be understood with the proper wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. So when you feel your body and feel the heaviness of the body, we experience it, we know it, but we know it's a transitory experience. If we experience the fire element, the heat or coolness of the body, you know, it's what's happening now, and we're aware of it, but we know it's a transitory experience. It's not who I am. We don't say, oh, I'm fire. Oh, oh, oh I'm earth. We just see, oh, this is what's happening now. When we experience the fluidity or the cohesiveness of the, of the uh, water element, or the, um, or the movement, the breath itself is part of the air element. We don't think, oh, I'm the breath. We, we have the experience, we know the experience, we experience it deeply, but we also see it's just an experience. It's not I, me, or mine. And then the space element. The space element's really interesting. It's interesting because if you start to sense, most people don't experience the space element. They're, they're much a little more aware of earth, air, fire, and water when I start to describe them. But the sense of spaciousness that can arise in the mind and the body is one of the possibilities that can happen as we stay present with the body especially if we stay present with something that's uncomfortable and it starts to relax. And if you stay present, if you stay present, if there's a contraction in the body and you sit with it and you breathe with it and it starts to relax, you start to, all of a sudden people say, oh, there's more space there. That's something people will notice. And then if they start to stay with that, then the space element can start to permeate your experience. And you can see the body actually, more than anything, is mostly space. We know that scientifically. And then you can have that experience directly. And one of the benefits of experiencing the space element is it's one of the 
qualities of mind when the mind is free is it's spacious, it's open, it's relaxed, it's uncluttered, or everything can be here. Like when we let go of our head, like Douglas Harding teaches us, then everything's here. We don't have a head, it's not solid anymore. There's just space here. When, when I look at my head, there's nothing here, right? And there's everything here when there's space. It's the physical experience of space or openness or emptiness. And this doesn't mean, I want to be careful here, because sometimes people will hear a talk like this and think it means, oh, we, we, we need to, there's some uh, encouragement to dissociate from the body. It's actually quite the opposite. The more directly you come into contact with your body, the more the body will reveal its total mystery and magic and spaciousness and openness. Dissociation from the body will be a contraction somewhere. If we're used to identifying with our body or identifying with being a solid thing, which most of us do because of our images and our ideas and our beliefs and really the beliefs of the culture, it totally reifies reality and reifies each person. It'll be very disconcerting when space arises at first. Can can be a little frightening to people. They're like, well, I'm losing it. I'm losing myself. I'm, I'm losing my boundaries. And it's true, you will lose your boundaries in a certain way, but it doesn't mean you can't have boundaries when you need them. I want to also be careful here on that level. It doesn't mean you have, you can't say no to whatever you need to say no to. It just means our identification is not limited to the body boundary is not limited to the body image. This is from Miranda Shaw, who wrote a, a great book called Passionate Enlightenment. She said, embodiment is understood not to be a soul in a body, but rather a multi-layered mind-body continuum. I'm going to read this a couple times. A mind-body continuum of corporality, affectivity, cognitivity, not cognitively, cognitivity it should be, and spirituality whose layers are subtly interwoven and mutually interactive. Should I read that once more? Yeah. Embodiment is understood not to be a soul in a body, but a, a rather a multi-layered mind-body continuum of corporality of physical, of somatic experience, of affective or feeling of experience, of cognitive or mental experience, and spiritual experience whose layers are subtly interwoven and mutually interactive. This non-self is seen not as a bounded or static entity, but as the site 
of a host of energies, inner winds and flames, dissolutions, melting and flowing that can bring about dramatic transformations in embodied experience and provide a bridge between humanity and divinity. Shall I read it again? Okay, so I'm not, I'll do the second part again. This non-self is seen not as a bounded or static entity, but as the site of a host of energies, inner winds and flames, dissolutions, melting and flowing that can bring about dramatic transformations in embodied experience and provide a bridge between humanity and divinity. It's a beautiful quote from her. So I've given you tonight some areas to contemplate, to contemplate our images of ourself, to contemplate the idea that we're bounded by the shape, of, that we're limited to the physical boundary of our body, to begin to question those areas, to begin to investigate those areas. And also at the same time, now it's not simply a mental investigation. The investigation for it to be fruitful needs to be rooted in the felt sense of the body that's sitting here right now. The body that's tired or achy or bored or energized or however it is, but actually to keep getting present, to keep letting the consciousness saturate, soak, mingle, totally become one with the body because that's where these contemplations will reveal the truth, right here, right now. And this is the last piece about body awakening, again from Hamid Ali, he said, when the body is relaxed and balanced, there is no tension, there are no boundaries. The boundaries are tensions in the body. The experience of boundaries goes along with tensions in the body. The body armor, it's a, a word that's used in um, somatic uh, psychologies, body armor, for the holdings that we have that over time uh, uh, through the difficulties of life that we actually create armor in our body. The body armor is the bound, you know, one of the reasons I love bike riding is at a certain point it totally breaks down whatever shell there is in my body. Or it, it, it melts it or it does something and the body becomes something I don't know. It, it can't hold at a certain point of, of exercise, it can't hold the tensions, it has to relax. Doesn't mean it doesn't get tense later, but it, for that time it's very open. So when the body is balanced, relaxed, there is no need for boundaries. So you could say that some self-realization can be done physically. In the end, self-realization is the completely relaxed body, nothing else. When the body is completely relaxed, it is a window to the universe. That window allows the possibility of perception, awareness, and awakening. Let's sit for a minute, please, before we end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.